Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I chose to speak on um, Ecclesiastes today, a couple of reasons. Uh, I see it hasn't really been addressed lately in this group. And another is that I love the book. And another is tomorrow's Labor Day. And Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about work and uh, the meaning of work or the futility of work. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes uh, chapter one. And then in the next session, it'll be Ecclesiastes chapter two. So if you, you can open your Bible there, I have some of the scriptures on the screen. However, now let's see what the Lord has to say to us from Ecclesiastes. Life with a Long View, Chapter 1. At some point in life, it is said, people turn their attention from uh, success to significance. They want their days to count and their life to count. Um, I remember speaking to Dr. Ryrie, who died a few years ago. I spoke to him about five years before he died. And uh, I asked him, what can I pray for you? And... Um, he said, well, pray that I would number my days with wisdom. And I thought that was a good prayer request. He was, of course, referring to Psalm 90, verse 12, which says, So teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He realized that he was older and end of his life was drawing near, as we all should realize to one degree or another. And don't we all want to count, make our days count? Uh, we don't want to just count our days. We want to make our days count. We don't want to just measure success. We want to measure significance. And so what is the wisdom that helps us to live life in such a way that we can really make our lives, our work, and our days count? And that's important to know because we live in a world that is very unpredictable. It's very mysterious in any ways. And sometimes it just doesn't make sense. When we read Ecclesiastes, we see a man who is struggling at the end of his age, Solomon as an old man struggling to make sense of life, and he doesn't really come up with any very clear answers for us. In fact, many people who read the book of Ecclesiastes get a rather negative vibe from it, and, uh, and they think he's a dissatisfied, soured old man. But I think what he's doing is just telling about life as it is, and ultimately, how we can live a life that we can't understand. Thoreau, it was Henry David Thoreau who said, most people live a life of quiet desperation. Most people live a life of quiet desperation. I don't know if that's true of you. Um, but even Christians in ministry have their, their periods of boredom. Uh, I like what I do. I do a lot of traveling. You say, oh, well, traveling, that's fun and exciting. No, it's getting to be very boring and tedious. If you travel a lot, you know what I mean? It's sitting in airports and waiting in lines and getting bumped and bumped around and treated rudely, um, eating terrible food. Our partner on our last trip got a, a blood clot in his leg and had to stay the rest of the trip in the African hospital. So um, it has its routines that, that aren't all so exciting. But life, a lot of it is just, just routine and boring. And we wonder, does it really make a difference what I'm doing? Am I living my life as to make a difference? Well, even Christians can experience that. 
we, we have Jesus Christ, and he makes life exciting. He's, that's his promise to us. But I think even every pastor or missionary will tell you that much of their work is mundane chores that no one sees them doing behind the door from Monday through Friday to do the sermon work and the sermon prep and the time on their knees praying or the hospital visits where they're waiting for hours for the surgeon to come out. There are many things that just go on and on like that as well. And so we wonder, what, how do we make sense of life like that? How do we put that puzzle together? Uh, we, we look at the news and we see meaningless events happening, like, like these mass murders where people walk into a school in Florida or in Texas or in Sandy Hook and they just start shooting children. It makes no sense. We, we don't need, we've given up trying to make sense of it, I think. It's becoming so commonplace and so frustrating to try to understand that. And so we, when we look at life, we're filled with questions. It is somewhat of a mystery to us, isn't it? And I think that we all have a first question we're going to ask God. Have you ever thought about your first question you're going to ask God? What would it be? Lord, would you explain this to me? I've already got it figured out. You see, I, my brother, um, who's four years older than me, he's deceased now. He, uh, he got severe schizophrenia when he was 18 years old, right when he was ready to graduate from high school. And he started acting so strangely and talking out loud in class and seeing things that they, they didn't let him graduate from high school. And long story short is he never graduated from high school. He never had a job. He never had a girlfriend. He lived with my mother until he died at the age of 58. And I say to God, God, why Robert? What was the purpose of his life? Why? Don't we all have a question like that of something that's way beyond our comprehension? And we know that the answer is up there somewhere, but not in this world. So how do we live skillfully in a world that is so full of so, such seemingly meaningless events that doesn't always make sense? It seems like we could go to someone who's older than us and seek his advice and get some good answers. And so we turn to Solomon because Solomon is part of a genre of literature called wisdom literature. And the word wisdom, hokma in the in Hebrew language, actually has the idea of doing something skillfully. So I like to simply define wisdom as living skillfully. It's not the same as knowledge. You can know a lot of things, but if you don't apply that, you're not living skillfully. So wisdom is applying knowledge skillfully, living skillfully. And there's a whole genre in the Old Testament of books that are called the wisdom books, like Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. When you study them further, you notice that they really break down in, into different perspectives. For example, in the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, you have ideal life represented. You have life as it should be before the fall. This is what you can expect. And so when we read Proverbs, it says a righteous man lives a long life. Train up a child in the way he's go, when he, that he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Generally, that's true. And it gives us these truisms, truisms to live by, and we're wise to follow them. Um, however, we know that they're not always true. There are exceptions to that. You train up a child the right way, but they go astray. Adam went astray from his father, God. And, uh, and there are biblical examples, and you have examples in your lives as well. And it's not always a righteous man who lives a long life. Sometimes good people die young, don't they? You take a book like the Song of Solomon, love in an idyllic setting, a beautiful garden and a man in a courtship, and they, they vow their love to one another. That's what love was meant to be like before the fall. But sin introduced all kinds of problems after Genesis chapter 3. And now we know marriage is not always so blissful. 
Well, then you have Job and Ecclesiastes on the other side, and they deal with life in the real world, a life that is a sin-filled world, and it focuses on the exceptions to the rules. So what about that man who lives righteously and yet dies while he's young? Ecclesiastes asks the question, how do you make sense of that? And Job, here's a man who did everything right. No, the devil could not find anything wrong with him. And yet God put him through extreme suffering that you would only expect the worst sinner to endure. So it's good for wisdom literature to look at both sides of life. The obvious, more obvious and expected part, but then the exceptions that we can't always figure out. And Ecclesiastes falls into the, that side of the wisdom literature that we can't always figure out. It lists a lot of exceptions in life and, and then gives us some conclusions about how we can live in that kind of world. So we look together at the book of Ecclesiastes. It starts really easy and helpfully in verse one with uh, the author saying the words of the preacher. The words of the preacher, the word in Hebrew is Koheleth. Koheleth comes from a word for assembly. So this is the words of someone who spoke to an assembly or a preacher. I think some Bibles translated preacher. Um, we'll call him the preacher here. Uh, the words of the preacher. So he has some wisdom. He has some experience. He has some respect and authority. But the real clue to who he is is the next phrase. He's the son of David and he's king of Jerusalem. That tells us that this is written by Solomon himself. Solomon, the most prestigious of David's sons, the wealthiest and the wisest of David's sons, wrote this book as he did many, many other books in a thousand songs that scriptures tell us. So he was used to teaching and he was used to having people listen. I imagine he got about every question there was under the sun, as teachers often do. And so he was very practiced in answering those tough questions. And yet... When we read the book, we see he can't answer all of the tough questions uh, like we expect him to. So here he is, probably in his old age, looking back at his life experiences and um, a, a life of privilege, truly born with a golden spoon in his mouth. He's on top of the food chain. He's the most powerful man in the region. He's the richest man, maybe in all of history. He has authority and he has wisdom, not just human wisdom. But remember, God gave him a special endowment of wisdom, blessed him with divine wisdom. So we would expect him to have some answers, but he's got some puzzles himself. And when he looks out at the world, he sees a lot of meaninglessness. And here's how he deals with the meaninglessness. We would expect him to deal with it pretty positively and write some some, uh, you know, success books, maybe like. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Prophets, or Become a Better King, or Seven Secrets of Successful Concubines. You know, he had 300 of them, so. But instead, what we get is a book that's a little more sour and dour, and we see, we see titles of books like this, Who Stole the Cheese Off Your Cracker, or Is Your Crown Too Tight, or Get a Life. Those titles would be probably modern-day versions of uh, Solomon's writings, as we compare them to Ecclesiastes. So it, it seems like um, some people who read the book of Ecclesiastes, say, oh, this is written by a bitter old man. He's really turned sour on life. He's uh, agnostic and, uh, and uh, a pessimist and so forth. I don't think they're right. I think we'll see as we work through it that um, that's the wrong perspective to take on Solomon. 
Now, one word that we do read quite a bit in the book is this word vanity, where he says, all is vanity. And he uses that word more times than he uses the name of God. That word appears 38 times, 38 times. And the word God only appears 37 times. Now, what does it mean, vanity? Now, some Bibles translate it meaninglessness, maybe futility or mystery. It comes from the idea, the word that means breath or vapor. And so it's that which is uh, kind of appears and, and, and disappears. So it's, it contains the idea of futility. There's some mystery involved, uh, an enigma. Meaninglessness is a good word for it. Solomon is saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. He does not, he is not able to make sense of the world. It is a mystery to him. And he's just saying, he's just being honest with us. You, you understand and appreciate. Here's a, here's a man who's looking at the world as it is and describing it and being honest. And he is a realist, as we see throughout some of these verses uh, sprinkled throughout the book. He just says it like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He says in uh, chapter 115, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. And he says, all go to one place, all are from the dust and all return to the dust. Not very cheery, is it? And that's in 320. In 720, he says, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and not and does not sin. So all are sinners. That is recited for us again in Romans chapter 3. And then in 729, truly, this only ha I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is laying out life as he sees it. He is just a realist. It doesn't take us long to look around us in our world today and see the same kind of futility. Uh, a lot of our culture and society or politics and art is, is just going into absurdity or cynicism or pessimism or nihilism, you know, the philosophy that there's nothing that matters. And if nothing matters, then that would determine how we live our lives, wouldn't it? We would live them pretty recklessly. Shakespeare's Hamlet noticed it many years ago. He said, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. Carl Jung, the psychologist, said the central neurosis of our times is emptiness. And when we look at our art today and our music and the drama and the TV, we see uh, a lot of darkness, a lot of pessimism. I don't look at a lot of movies on purpose, but I tell you, the, uh, one of the reasons is because so many of them are dark. Um, I see most of my movies on international flights because there's nothing else to do. There are a lot of dark movies. If they would just turn on the lights and make a daytime scene sometimes, it would just change the whole attitude. But everything seems to be in darkness and, and depressive and fatalistic in attitude, which leads to, leads to all kinds of problems with drugs, drinking, uh, suicide, depression. Or the other extreme is hedonism because people say, if there's nothing to life, then I'm just going to live it up and enjoy myself all I can. There's nothing to answer for. I'm going to enjoy. So life seems futile. And then in verse 17, 
He says, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. So here again, he's saying it's just like the wind. He can't grasp it and um, uh, he can't make a lot of meaning of it. Back at the uh, beginning of the chapter, he asks the question, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? By the way, let's stop and, and notice this phrase right here, under the sun. That phrase occurs 29 times in the book. You always want to look for phrases that recur uh, often, like um, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, 39 times. And this one, 29 times, life under the sun. What is he talking about, life under the sun? Solomon is talking about life as we see it. It implies that there's someone above the sun who sees it better than us. But we are limited like, like goldfish in a fishing bowl to seeing only what we can see. We're like a, a turtle in a terrarium. That's, this is our world, and we see things this way. But there's a terrarium keeper, there's a goldfish keeper, and there is someone outside of the sun who sees everything. But we are limited in our view. So what profit is it for us to work? Tomorrow's Labor Day, we take a day off of work, but we honor those who work. What profit is it from all the labor that has gone into building this country, your business, your home, your family, when we're toiling like this in this world of mystery? Well, we're like ants that are scurrying around. You ever have an ant farm and watch the ants scurrying around? They look like they're doing the most important work in the world. And all they're doing is like digging a tunnel for their dead ants or something like that. But to them, that's the, that's the most important work in the world. And they're putting all their effort into it. So he says in verse four, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continuously and comes again on its circuit. And the rivers run into the sea, and the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. What, what the author here is showing us is that life is made up of a series of cycles, endless cycles. One generation comes, another generation uh, goes. Uh, someone said, not very cheerily, that uh, a baby is born, a new death has begun. That's not usually what you put on a, on a baby shower card, but, but isn't that true? Because the death rate for each of us is one. Death rate in Tampa is the same as the death rate in Texas. It's one per person. And everyone born will die unless the Lord comes first. So the world doesn't slow down for, for each, any of us, is what he's trying to say. The earth continues to cycle through its movements, its geographic, meteorological movements. Um, we, we see here some very good insights and knowledge that Solomon had about the weather, about the, the, the sun going down and so forth. Of course, we know that the earth is ro rotating. That doesn't mean that Solomon did not believe that, although he may have. Uh, he was just using language of description. It looks like the sun goes down. He talks about the cycles of the wind turning from the north and the south. Um, that sounds like where we live. It whirls about continually. And then he talks about the sea and the water cycle, how the water that goes to the sea returns to the place from where it came. Uh, that's a fascinating insight for Solomon to have about the water cycle, isn't it? But again, he's not giving us a, a science lesson. He's simply trying to show us 
that life has its cycles. Uh, the world cannot be interrupted. And we are born into that. And it's not going to stop for us. And really, ultimately, the world doesn't care. The world is a cold, can be a cold and meaningless place. It doesn't care. Babies are born in the street, and they die in the street in some countries, in some places, even in America. So life can be cheap. Life can be futile. And the labor that we, we do, what profit does it have then in that kind of a, a world? So he goes on in verse 8. Uh, he says, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So in verse 8, he's saying that uh, there's a weariness to it. We have to work for everything, but we're never satisfied with what we see. Especially if you're a perfectionist, it's never good enough. You always want it to be a little bit better. You're, you're never satisfied, and your ear is never filled with hearing. Um, this makes me think of all the gadgets that we have to look at. You know, we have, it used to be that you would talk to one another in the streets, and then someone invented the TV, and everybody's watching the TV. Now we have the flat screen TV. Now we have TVs in our cars and on the back of the seats. And now we have them in our hands, so the kids don't look at each other or parents anymore. They're all looking at their gadgets and gizmos. And you know, that's bad in America. You see people all the time in restaurants just looking down at their gadgets, right? I just came from China, and I tell you, if you think it's bad here, everybody in China just walks around like this, their heads down in their gadgets. I've never seen anything like it. And, uh, and the ear is filled with hearing. You know, we hear a nice song, and uh, we, we long to hear it again, but well, wait a minute, you can get it on Spotify or Pandora, and you can play it as much as you want to over and over and over and over again until you get sick of it if you want to. Uh, it's very attainable and very easy to do. So... We're always looking for something new to please our senses. And then he says, our labor really doesn't produce anything new in verses 9 through 11. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Now, what is he saying here? Because he says uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And you say, see, this is new, but it's not really new. I, I think we have to understand that even the things that we discover that are new, atomic energy, for example, uh, computers, are, are not new to God in the sense that the principles for their existence were already programmed into this creation. And they just built on principles already learned. It's not like somebody pulled something new out of the sky and, and created it. God put everything here for us to, to make whatever we make. And we just add on to it and improve it and improve it until we get the atomic bomb or a computer. I think I've heard it said that there are six basic machines uh, that run the world, like the lever, the pulley, um, the inclined plane, and I forget the others, but, uh, you know, basically there's, it, you boil mechanics down and it, it's very simple. You boil science down and it's very simple. Uh, maybe that's what he means when he says there's nothing new under the sun. And in verse 11, he says that there's no remembrance of, of things that are to come by those who will come after. So future generations are going to look back with very little memory of the things that you and I have gone through. My mother likes to 
talk about being part of the greatest generation. And she's 95 years old today. Maybe some of you uh, can claim that that title that of distinction, the, being part of the greatest generation. You know, Tom wrote, wrote, Brokaw wrote that book. Those who went through World War II, times like that. And I do have great respect for them. Um, but they will not be remembered by the next generation. In fact, let me ask you this. You know the name of your grandparents, if I asked you, right? And how many would know the names of your great-grandparents, if I asked you? Would some know the names of your great-grandparents? I think I could pull that off. Tell me the names of your great-great-grandparents. You've done genealogy work, haven't you? <laughs> the truth is, for most of us, four generations from now, no one will know who you are. In four generations, no one will know who you are. Because time will go on, and life will go on, and there will not be a remembrance of things past. That adds a certain futility to the life that we have. Well, so what Solomon tries to do then is he tries to find ultimate fulfillment in life. And one of the things he does is by working harder. And working harder, he finds, can't find the ultimate meaning of life. Uh, he says he was the preacher, the king over Israel and Jerusalem, reminding that he, was, he had access to every resource there was. He had a bottomless uh, bank account and manpower, so he could do anything he wanted. And here's what he did. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. So he's doing some homework here, he says. He's searching. And um, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I imagine that Solomon as the king, as known as he was in the land, had all kinds of things brought before him all kinds of animals, all kinds of machines, all kinds of inventions. And yet he says, nothing is new. Nothing really adds meaning to this life. It's still vanity and grasping for the wind. And there's a certain uh, bent in life that cannot be made straight. What is crooked, he says, cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be numbered. And then in verses 16 through 18, he says, I'm going to try to learn more. Not just work harder, but learn more. And so he says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and I have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and, and knowledge. Now, this is not just the wisdom and knowledge that he gained on his own. But remember, he had that divine gift that God said he was going to give Solomon. And so I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, he had a, a rude discovery as he dug deeper and deeper into knowledge and wisdom. The more he learned, the more depressed he got about the world around him. You ever do that? You turn on the news to find out what's going on in the world, on in the world, and then you kind of regret that you turned on the news to find out what was going on in the world. There are so many crazy things things that make us grieve and have sorrow. So with Solomon in his exploration for great wisdom to explain life, he, he just got a big dose of, uh, of reality that really continued to sour him on life as it is under the sun in this world from this perspective. And that's how he ends chapter one. So what do you do 
When life looks like it is meaningless and doesn't explain itself, how do we live a life like under that kind of situation? Well, Solomon eventually explains it more at the end of the book. But for now, there's some conclusions we can we can reach. And one of them is don't get caught up in this world. Don't get caught up in this world. Everything changes in this world. And um, we should always want to try to have a better one. But life really begins when sometimes we understand that this is as good as it gets. There's a, a movie I saw. And whenever I say that, it's not, I'm not rec necessarily recommending it. But it was with uh, Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear and Jack Nicholson. And there are three misfits. And the title of the movie is It's As Good As It Gets. And it's about these three people who just try to they can't tolerate each other, but they're all broken and messed up, but they try to get along. And by the end of the movie, they get along a little bit. Um, but the mo movie title, it's as good as it gets. Don't expect everything to be fixed in your lifetime. The good life begins when you stop wanting a better one. So there's some wisdom in that. If we live in a, such a broken, mysteriously shrouded world, then let's learn to make the best of what we have and the best of where we're at and not wait for a better day when things are going to get better. They could even get worse. Learn to live in the glory of the ordinary. Learn to live in the glory of the ordinary. What do I mean by that? Well, what is ordinary? Pain is ordinary. Illness is ordinary. Debt is part of life. People and letting, down, letting you down in relationships is a part of life. Failure is a part of life. We don't always win. Our friends don't always praise us. We're not always in the best of health. We're not always flushing our bank accounts. So learn to live in the real world. Learn to live in the ordinary. That's where most of us live, maybe all of us. And then anchor life to the eternal. Anchor life to the eternal. Remember, there's two perspectives here. One is the perspective of life under the sun, the human perspective where we don't have everything explained. But remember, there's someone over the sun who sees all things, who lives in eternity, and he has the key to life, not we. So learn to live anchored to the eternal. That would be God himself. The secret to a fulfilled, meaningful life is not working harder, trying harder, learning more. There's no sense or no answer under the sun. So if not, it must be above the sun, and that means an eternity with God. When we see this meaningless repetition and the cycles of life, we realize that God knows how to make sense of that. And the benefit is not in what we accomplish, but what we become for him and for eternity. So keep work in perspective. Don't worship your work. Keep your family in perspective. Don't worship your family. Ask yourself, this week, did you do anything eternally significant? Was your family, was your work, was your studies, were they anchored to eternity? Somewhere outside of this, the futility of this world. How do we do that? Well, I think that comes from walking with God, from walking with God and talking to him on a daily basis, surrendering to him on a daily basis. God, I don't understand what's going to happen today, but it's in, it's in your control, and I'm going to trust you with it. And we're going to walk through this day together. And we're going to see what eternal benefit comes out at the end of the day. So when I lay my head on the pillow tonight, 
I'll be able to look back and I'll say, well, Lord, thank you. It was just a routine day, but, you know, I did get a chance to be friendly towards that person across the street who needed a little help or whatever. So we don't just count our days, but we make our days count. And we should start now to live with eternity in mind. And that all starts of a li in a life with Jesus Christ, because he's the one who is the way to the Father who holds the key to this life. Someone said, when you can't find the key to life, trust the lockmaker. If you haven't figured out life, that's okay. You know the lockmaker, and he's got it figured out. And so the secret then is to trust in the lockmaker when you don't understand life. So the first question I might ask when I get to heaven is, what about Robert? But I like what C.S. Lewis said because he said that the first thing we'll say that when we get to heaven is, of course, of course. The lockmaker knew all, made, he knew all along the answer to the question that I've had all my life and you too. So anchor your life to eternity and live for the one who is outside of this world and this world will be invested with more meaning and less futility and a sense of eternal. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom of Solomon that you gave him. And though he took missteps in life, we learn from those as well. And as well as we do from his wisdom that you have recorded for us. And Father, if there's today those who are dealing with big puzzles in life, I pray that you would encourage them that it's not a puzzle to you. Help them to place their faith in you and to walk with you and to live for you, even though they don't understand the things through which they're going. I commend all of us to you for that kind of wisdom. And we thank you for our time together to study it. We ask your blessing on the next hour as well. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.